This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters Without Orders. Order, order. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders, a podcast where we discuss what made news, what didn't and some things that absolutely shouldn't have. This is yours truly, Cherry Agarwal, and this week we'll be discussing a crisp list of topics. This includes the National Register of Citizens, or the NRC in Assam, the proposed amendments to the Right to Information Act, the killings of at least 10 members of the Gond community in Uttar Pradesh. This has come to be known as Sonabhadra Massacre, right Ayush? Yes. We'll also be discussing a petition filed in the Bombay High Court that sought for Alibag se aya hai kya phrase to be banned. What? I think Gaurav would be the best to explain what this is. Before we begin, let me introduce the panel. We have Ipshita Chakravarti. Hi, Ipshita. Hi. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders. Ipshita works as news editor for Kashmir and Northeast at scroll.in. She also gives, in her words, unsolicited opinions on assorted political and cultural things. <laughs> I think this is something all of us are guilty with, right Gaurav? No. <laughs> No. no. <laughs> okay, I am guilty for sure. <laughs> also making an appearance again this week is Ayush Tiwari. Hi Ayush. Again, I wasn't there last week. An appearance was the choice no. of word, huh? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he I mean, okay, let me ask you this. The nation wants to know Ayush, why do you keep avoiding this podcast? Why do you do that, Ayush? Why why, why do my editors assign me uh, you what? know, outstation work what on the day this podcast about? has to be recorded? We thought Excuse you were on a road me. trip or something, not through three states. Yeah, yeah, you went for a chutti. No, no, no. Just uh, you know, little <laughs> Offsite to Mewat and back. Uh huh. So offsite isn't necessarily work. Okay. So mm. everyone vacations in Mewat, right? <laughs> Especially Nu. <laughs> Maybe you do. Who knows? Okay. Okay. We also have with us Gaurav Sarkar. Hi, Gaurav. Hi, Cherry. What is this? What does this phrase "Alibag se aya hai"? What does it mean? Uh, so there's a place next to Bombay. It's not in Bombay as you thought it was. It's not in Bombay. It's closer to Pune. It's called Alibag, which is a retreat sort of place. And the phrase there are white sand beaches. No, that's no? really it's a what? myth. What? What have people told me about? There's Ali only Bagh. construction work that goes on right now in Alibag. Are you serious? Yeah. There are no beaches in Alibag. No, but like film stars own a lot of uh, high tech resorts and get vacation homes in Alibag. Okay, this um, is just which are like beach facing. Yeah. People have told me a lot of nonsense about this place. Then. But Alibag se aya is a very old Bollywood phrase. Which uh, so when somebody says something very random that doesn't make sense, you ask him ki tu Alibag se aya hai kya? And there was a particular person in Bombay, Mr. Thakur, whose dad is an ex-Congress MLA. He petitioned the Bombay High Court last week, a petition that was dismissed by the judges, mm-hmm. and he said that we want to ban the phrase "Alibag se aaya hai kya" because it shows the people as uh, being illiterate and they don't show him in a good light. So. The judges told him to grow a sense of humor and mm. not come back to the court with such stupid grievances. So, if this is the phrase, let's say, if this phrase was used in some other states' context, let's say, from Assam or let's say from Uttar Pradesh, would you guys still want this to be banned? Let's say from Bombay, if it was not Alibag. No, I think the judges were completely right on this. I mean, can you imagine tomorrow somebody will say to Park Street se aaya hai kya? like that, yeah. and it'll just become more and more territorial and more and more hyperlocal. Hmm. So the judges are known like sometimes for their humor to contain situations in court. This was definitely one of them. Ipshita, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think of an equivalent for um, Delhi or Calcutta, like what we say in Delhi. Gurgaon se aaya. You say Jamna Par se aaya. Actually, it's not that phrase that way, but there is definitely contempt in what the way. What is Jamna Par se aaya? So the people who live the, on the other side of the Yamuna. Yeah. So they are not... See, it's a, actually comes from a prejudice of immigrants because the, pe- the societies there are constituted by people from Purvanchal and others other p- places. So back in the day when I mean we were growing up and you know class was a very heavy thing among the Delhi middle class. Class is still a very yeah. heavy thing. Still, it still is probably I don't know but uh, back then I've, I've, I used to see the Punjabis of Delhi used to have mm. a lot of contempt <laughs> for <laughs> people of Jamna And Par. they used to say Jamna Par se aaya kya? Not Jamna Par se aaya kya but you know dismiss people as a re to Jamna Par se aaya. But how serious to somebody how offended does someone have to be from Alibag mm. to actually take this to the Bombay High Court and say that judges can you all please ban the phrase because people are yeah. making fun of me what I don't get is why did the court admit the petition why was it even hearing it the, I mean why would it not hear it it's still mm-hmm. a petition at the end of it you can admit the petition and then dismiss it so however frivolous all petitions should be accepted it said that it was saying. offensive to him because of the region he hails from and it mm-hmm. shows the people who come from that region in a very bad light mm-hmm. who are illiterate who are mm-hmm. dumb so I mean the court heard it out but the judgement that it gave within like a couple of minutes was really great where it said that you know please don't waste our time and 
please grow a sense of humor. In fact, uh, there was a there, in 2017 there was a the court the Supreme Court was yeah, hearing yeah, out yeah. Uh, Santa Banta jokes <laughs> at that time. Sikh, Sikh jokes especially, yeah, yeah, because and they it made them uh, look of people of low intellect and foolish. Yeah, and the Supreme Court had said that it'll issue something or the other to make sure. Yeah, that but jokes at are the banned. end of it, then I think Deepak Mishra was hearing out that yeah, case, yeah. and at the end of it, he said that we won't regulate it; we leave it to the state governments to do that. So if the state yeah. government finds it offensive, then you approach the court. But if a person in his private capacity approaches with a petition, there's no reason to like take it seriously or hear him out. The Santa Banta jokes was fired by these two uh, Gurudwara committees. One of the Delhi and the other was the Shiromani some committee. Okay. Gurudwara committee and um, the people who were defending, who were actually arguing against the ban, said that the bans never work because you know hmm. even if you try, and you know the meme culture, especially nowadays, if you try to you know clamp down on something very heavily, people actually joke about it much more. Yeah. So what pornography came of is it? banned, but pornography is everywhere on the internet. So bans don't work in general and second i don't know how do you ban it anyway hmm. you know but what came of it did the state governments do anything no after that there was no action taken there was no regulation for the re- for santa banta jokes i mean you're stepping into a re- stepping into a sort of a booby trap when you say that we want to regularize or regulate jokes you know that is that hmm. becomes a because every community as observed by the bombay high court right now with this particular case every community has like certain jokes yeah you have santa banta jokes your madrasi jokes your bengali jokes so if the court begins to step into that and regulate it then where's your sense of humor well i guess there might have been a sting to these jokes originally like you said you know the people who had migrated from purvanchal and other parts of the country i mean there might have been you know a sense of stigma attached to it but i guess i mean over time these things i mean the original insult fades and it's just uh yeah um yeah definitely i mean even in the aliba case i'm sure the grievance is authentic hmm. is just that what they want that is to ban it i don't know how hmm. you do that for hmm. example the whole let's say fair and lovely affair in bollywood when hmm. people came out and called it out and it you know dheere dheere it's going away now hmm. the same thing bollywood is also the place where sikhs are shown as you know hmm. all the characters hmm. are very jovial yeah. and they're very hmm. stupid hmm. so it, it's it's more of a cultural movement that takes away these thing not some court order Before yeah. we move on from this topic I have I just uh, want to go back to the question I asked earlier and want both of you to weigh in. Ipshita what do you think should all petitions be heard in the court? However, no, I mean, there is a mechanism for hmm. dismissing frivolous petitions and I mean you have like is saying petitions and courts and like we have given the amount of judicial pendency we have i don't think uh, i think the court needs to discriminate how it discriminates of course is another matter ayush same yeah i don't feel think anything and different. you were talking about cultural movements should cultural movements or people who are sort of foot soldiers of the these movements should they take the court's help in sort of trying to implement the move or the change in the society that they are looking for they should definitely seek the court's help i mean the mm-hmm. courts are there for a reason but uh, how they seek help as i said bans are not really effective but um, i think some once uh, you know a learned say chief justice of india would say something that sets a sort of a precedent in the culture mm. okay. so if there is a civil society movement mm-hmm. and they know that there's the chief justice of india or the courts are behind mm. them then that just boosts the movement if not you know actually putting in place some measures mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. them thank you for your thoughts but uh, now i want to move on to our next topic first i want to ask Ipshita you've been writing about the NRC you've been writing about the northeast you've been editing pieces from there and you also visited the northeast i think in march earlier this year that was the last time i went okay. yes so i wanted to ask what do you think first could you tell us what is the NRC Ipshita you've been writing about the NRC for a bit just a brief context for our listeners why is it contentious and then from there moving to what's been the media's coverage has there been fair coverage So to answer your first question the NRC is the National Register of Citizens and in 1951 uh, all states actually had it according to uh, some historians but um but in Assam it's been particularly contentious and now Assam is updating the 1951 register of mm-hmm. citizens it is meant to be sort of a roster of genuine indian citizens living in Assam and uh, one of the main the stated intentions of this exercise is to sift um, what the state calls illegal immigrants mm-hmm. from genuine indian citizens okay. illegal in this case means undocumented migrants 
in many cases to prove that you are an indian citizen for the purposes of this exercise you have to show that either you or your ancestors and were living in the country before march 24th 1971 which is midnight on march 24th 1971 mm-hmm. uh which is uh the eve of the bangladesh war so not only do you have to prove that you know your own identity you have to give uh you know show documents for showing your ancestors presence in the country mm-hmm. um you know from like at least 5 decades ago and then you have to prove that you are related to that ancestor what kind of documents are accepted for this process i mean uh, what do i have to provide to these tribunals to prove that okay i'm a resident not tribunals uh the nrc authorities that are, that's separate from the foreigners tribunals okay. and assam has two or three mechanisms for foreigner determination mm-hmm. so there are two sets of documents that you provide list a or legacy documents show sort of proof of your your ancestors presence in the country so these could be land records or various other or the most commonly used documents are uh, sort of your ancestors names in the, either the 1951 NRC or pre 1971 electoral rolls okay now what the office of the NRC did was they uh, digitized most of these mm-hmm. uh, the, these uh, document these electoral mm-hmm. rolls and the 1951 NRC and they put them up online and so you could sort of they created a database which you could visit and then you could sort of mm-hmm. find your sort of ancestor father grandfather whoever's name on these rolls mm-hmm. and then you have to prove uh, then the list b documents are uh, link documents mm-hmm. which prove that you are related to this person that you have you are claiming is mm-hmm. your ancestor so i mean this could be you know passport matriculation certificate you know there are also like several I mean, ration cards mm-hmm. uh, bank accounts but you know as it i mean there are many complications as the process progressed we realized that some documents were viewed with more suspicion than others which are these documents um, and why so so a lot of women uh, provided gram panchayat certificates mm-hmm. which are uh, sort of married women in mm-hmm. say rural assam um most of them with few other documents to prove that they were related to say their father or grandfather so th- these certificates say that such and such person originally from such and such village daughter of so and so got married and moved to this village okay so these are the only kind of link documents that these women had mm-hmm. uh but then you know uh, in 2017 the guwahati high court suddenly said that you can't use these documents these are not legally admissible they're okay. not recognized as of official documents uh then i mean it's a very complicated legal process but uh then the court supreme court said that you um you can use these documents provided they are bolstered by other submit uh okay. legal admissible documents but i mean it's a truism because many of the women who'd use these documents have no other proof mm-hmm. of uh you know parentage so that's one example so apart from the procedural flaws mm. that you described mm. what makes this so contentious <laughs> number of reasons so the thing is like in a sam it stems from a particular history in a particular context uh it's a border state it has an old history of tensions between you know bengalis and assamese people uh, dating back to colonial times it has seen waves of migration from starting from you know the late 19th century then even after partition you know from you know partition communal violence war various uh, and even economic migration mm-hmm. various reasons have driven people across the border now so there are primarily ethnic tensions in assam which mm-hmm. drove this process of nrc because you know people in assam the assam movement in the 70s and 80s they it was an anti foreigners movement Correct. and where they felt that uh, illegal bangladeshis were sort of um, entering the country entering illegally entering electoral rolls changing political futures so as you can see there are kind of ethnic prejudices built mm-hmm. into it there is also in in recent times there has been a, a communal hue to these tensions as well I mean, not mm-hmm. even recent times you know in the 1980s you had the nelly massacre but you know when the bjp government at the center when they talk about uh, the nrc mm-hmm. 
they try to kind of transmit the these anxieties of a border state with a particular history to the rest of the country in ways that could be you know disastrous mm-hmm. and the you know people you know like a home minister the talks about infiltrators guspetia mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you know immigrants as termites Correct. who need to be sort of kind of exterminated from mm-hmm. the body body politic and the implicit in at the center at least the construction of the illegal immigrant is uh, you know implicitly that uh, the illegal immigrant is a muslim immigrant or that is or what brings the contention of it being it targeting particular groups yes i mean in assam it uh, uh, we don't have official figures but anecdotal evidence suggests that bengali speaking people both hindu and muslim have been left out of the draft nrc the second pub- draft yes uh, that was last year published last year but i mean at the i mean the bjp you know brought up you know the citizenship amendment bill by which it proposed to give ease citizenship for you know persecuted minorities in so sort of in bangladesh pakistan and afghanistan uh, but these minorities are all non-muslim minorities and you know sam it would mean that a lot of bengali hindus mm-hmm. who might have been left out of the nrc would be regularized but the two together would mean muslims would not be muslims would not be eligible exactly. for citizenship and this had a backlash in assam because in assam it's primarily ethnic tensions right. which drive this exercise i want to come back to you with a couple of questions about media and media's coverage but before that i want to bring ayushan gorov in as people who've been watching the media what do you think of the media's coverage of the nrc was it sufficient was it fair did that as readers as news consumers did that give you enough information about the nrc and what's happening there to be honest it can be because of my own not following the issue too well mm-hmm. but in you know there are days when i do look out and try to understand what the nrc is and actually i haven't read much besides scroll and shoshuk mm-hmm. also compliment you and anurab for the fantastic coverage you guys have done on the issue because you know i get those push notifications and <laughs> it's only from the scroll app but besides that uh, there were some express explainers from back in the day but no mm-hmm. so even because the issue has been a year more than a year old now when you read articles in you know the mainstream media they take it you know, as an assumption that the reader knows what the nrc means mm. and therefore the, the developments are reported you know after that so anyone who is not well versed with this and to be honest i don't know how much you agree but the whole nrc the issue and the developments have been rather confusing oh very very confusing so it's been hard to follow uh, you know and there's almost multi- multitudes of mm. understanding of how it works and what it is so i am a confused uh, bird in that way <laughs> you should definitely go to a podcast that we recorded earlier with arunab and this actually reminds me the conversation with him he i had asked him why has it been so difficult to not get clarity or get concise reporting this was i think last year before all this blew up to the extent that we're talking about now and he said the issue is assam and the northeast come with so many layers that people especially from uh let's say the north uh the north india when they go there they find it difficult to struggle to understand the history which is why the reporting has been so limited because there are so many layers that will take time for a reporter to go there and to understand before they begin reporting which right. doesn't necessarily happen with so many bureaus closing down and reporters actually just going there let's say for a week or two weeks gorov adding to what yuvan ayush said uh I want to say that yeah it is I think that the whole issue has played out in phases which makes it even tougher to keep a track of because then you have to consciously be tracking it since day 1 to understand what the developments have been historically it's a very uh, it's a very convoluted issue and it dates back to pre 1971 uh what i did like about the final count you know the project mm-hmm. that you guys are doing at scroll is that it was a one stop place where you could practically get all the information and in terms of media's coverage legacy media or mainstream media didn't seem to give the issue that much importance but i feel like independent media like wire quint or scroll 
they did a really good job on it you know and uh, it actually brought the piece all together it showed uh, you know how even the flood is affecting the registration because like documents are getting tattered so i think there's a fine distinction in the way independent media and legacy media covered the issue i think it's also about sort of the priority in resources that legacy media or independent media can allocate that decision making comes from what importance is given to what news within the newsroom but i mean that way it's a little weird cuz legacy media chose not to cover the assam floods and they dedicated like 6 days of coverage to the bombay floods <laughs> which i mean it just goes to show that we don't report that much on that on that side you know true yeah. uh coming back to you ipsita you've been reporting on it you've been writing about it so if you want to let's say do some research what is your go to resource portal and what are your thoughts on the media's coverage um i basically look at academic work mm-hmm. uh, on on the history of assam and you know actually a lot of uh, i was trying to read up more on the 1951 nrc and what it was and the motivations behind the process and um there's actually very little that i could find and i'm told that a lot of archival material has not been made available to the public so um much of this process is opaque mm-hmm. but it's also an intensely confusing bureaucratic process the nrc itself you know various layers of verification re-verification mm-hmm. then assam has not just one mechanism for foreigner determination but two like there are the foreigners tribunals correct which operate separately there's you know the border police which refer cases to the tribunals mm-hmm. there are de-voters or doubtful voters declared by the election commission who also have to fight their cases in the tribe so it's it's a byzantine process which even i i mean i think the the uh the only way one can really gauge what is going on is through reporting is to going mm-hmm. to assam speaking to as many people as possible mm-hmm. um that's uh, really the only way uh could you tell us the difference between uh the foreigners tribunals which mm. are considered a quasi judicial body mm. and the nrc authorities how do they overlap or how do we distinguish so, what are the different roles so the tribunals have been set up i mean well there was a, a, a 1964 foreigners tribunals act so they are set up under that but most of them came into existence uh from 1983 uh during the throes of the anti foreigners movement mm-hmm. uh in assam they are a foreigner determination they they uh, they decide on matters of disputed nationality mm-hmm. and that's necessarily not communal not based on religion i mean none of this is officially based on religion it's just in the way it plays out Correct. it seems like it is disproportionately affected one community mm-hmm. um but uh, even that actually scratch that we don't really know uh the numbers mm-hmm. but um mostly in assam because of assam specific social cultural context it's been bengali speakers whether okay. hindu or muslim uh nrc is under the it's it's a supreme the updation of the nrc is a supreme court monitored process uh the department is under the officially under the home department of the government of assam but they don't really report to the state government they report to you know citizenship is a central subject okay. and they are they are involved in this bureaucratic process of updating the regi- register uh collecting documents and and people who are left out of the final nrc will be declared non citizens mm-hmm. they then have to uh fight their cases in the foreigners tribunals if they lose those cases then only then will they be declared foreigners and then what happens yeah that's the bit no one really knows um you know you have uh, detention centers in assam you have six detention centers so far these are mostly spaces carved out of uh, local prisons mm-hmm. i think there are about 900 to 1000 people in these centers uh, at the moment and uh, there there is i mean technically apparently they're supposed to be deported to bangladesh but bangladesh does not acknowledge such people as its own citizens you see you see this is not a simple matter of you know you came and overstayed on your visa or you strayed illegally you know you were arrested at the border trying to cross mm-hmm. these are people many of most of these people are have been living here for decades and suddenly they their citizenship is in doubt and they've been declared foreigners mm-hmm. so bangladesh does not accept it 
in uh, accept them india does not have a, a repatriation treaty with bangladesh so until then you know it, it, most people were subject to indefinite detention uh, you know which could which go is on. what i was wondering if india says these let's say a set of people are illegal yeah. and bangladesh doesn't want to accept them what happens to these people they are essentially stateless and earlier you know you it could you were liable to be put into indefinite detention now in may the supreme court said that people who have been held for more than 3 years could be uh, released on bail but you have to provide bail bonds worth rupees 2 lakh which most of these people cannot afford yes because they are the you know among the poorest residents of assam ayush what do you think of the bjp's call for a pan india nrc um well looking at how it's going out in assam it's not very encouraging nor the very you know doesn't make you very cheerful and knowing that mr But shah himself called these illegal immigrants termites Well, I don't expect anything better from him, but uh, that shows very little confidence in your elected representatives. Yeah, I have mm-hmm. no confidence. I have little confidence in my elected representative. I didn't even vote, by, for God's sake. But uh, I don't know. It's I think what he was trying to do was test the waters, mm-hmm. because as she said, you know, trying trying to tap into those as a border states' anxieties and you know their historical uh, tensions and nervousness. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were. just trying to test the waters they were trying to see what kind of response they got mm-hmm. i don't think they're serious about an nrc for the entire country that will be unprecedented but then <laughs> mr shah is also unprecedented <laughs> yeah the expression on your face is that of shock but also that it's possible that mr shah can pull off anything yeah of that scale <laughs> ipshita any closing thoughts on media's coverage about the nrc um yeah i think as i said i mean this is a completely byzantine process and uh, i i don't i don't think enough has been done to uh, explain it and to explain how difficult it actually is to prove citizenship even mm-hmm. if you have been living in a place for generations i mean who has these documents going back five decades proving that you're you're related to these people uh and also that that the nrc in assam is of a specific time and context that there are various anxieties specific to assam i don't think enough has been done to convey that you know by the medium yeah i there's this question which has been you know knowing at the end at the back of my head which is should journalism be activism driven that we are fighting for the rights of the people so we need to sort of establish what they are going through or should it be a very objective process that this is what is happening and this is how things are or should it be like this is what is happening this is wrong we got to raise our voice we got to cover it more and more so that the government takes note and does something about it gorov beginning with you just quick round before we move to the next topic well i think it's a very gray area first of all cause sometimes when you're on the ground and the issue is uh, it it revolves around human rights or it's a very important issue you tend to get drawn into taking part in a protest as opposed to covering it as a bystander So I think it's a very grey area in some cases where it's really sensitive you should listen to what like is going on within you and create a human side to it but otherwise objectivity is of utmost importance when you're reporting on stuff that is really sensitive on the ground correct ipshita absolutely it's a it's a tough uh, line na- to navigate but as you said to establish what to to report on what people are going through i don't think that uh uh violates the idea of objectivity because okay. i mean just i mean the objective is to get as much information out there as possible you know what people are, are going through their everyday lives also what government is thinking i mean it would be great if government could tell us more about what they're thinking and you know the bureaucracy the police you know just just everything you know just put everything out there correct aish well as they said i mean objectivity is a farce you can't be objective you know even as a journalist how hard you try but uh, what i see it as is simply journalist journalist should always always report what he mm-hmm. sees he or mm-hmm. she sees mm-hmm. and if that means bringing to light the victimhood of people sure that should be you know one of the you are at the end of the day telling the state how they are you know uh, doing wrong things mm-hmm. and to bring the victims ahead and show the state these are you know tumhare karne kartoot hain that's fine but activism if it goes into again this some sort of um, almost a state of delirium where 
a journalist might lose you know his judgment and start relating too much for example we have now have media houses that you know outrightly identify with certain identities of hindu identity and report mm-hmm. on the that those mm-hmm. matters then it's uh, it's useless that's not objective at all okay but uh, in the interest of time we will move on from this ayush what did you think was overreported or underreported over the last two weeks because you were definitely on chutti but Yes, carry on. I'll tell you something that was misreported. So, okay. uh, last week I was in Mewat in the you know town of Nu where a 12-year-old Dalit girl said she was raped on July 7th by three men, four men who happened to be Muslim. So, I was actually anticipating it to blow out like that tuple case, you know, where the girl is Hindu and the people the perpetrators happened to be Muslim. So, I was thinking it'll blow all over. It did not. But what I did discover when I was reporting on it was that the mainstream media houses that did carry small and crisp reports of what happened had got some of the very basic facts wrong for example this girl she claims she was raped but there's a medical report that has gone you know with her with the samples and um, hindustan times reported that that medical report said that she wasn't raped it has confirmed that she wasn't raped but i went there and i talked to the person who's heading the investigation the dcp and he said there the final opinion is not out we don't know yet whether she was raped was or not preliminary report that said she wasn't raped no there's no such report what did hd uh, base their thing on no one knows and it's an hd correspondent uh, byline they have so which report they talk about there's just one report with the samples it's mm-hmm. gone there's a counseling report which i got a hand uh, i got access to it says it just notes the you know the victim's narration of the events and she says i was raped so they got that wrong then the times of india reported and said that uh, the girl had actually gone to meet someone she knew and this person she knew actually you know along with three others raped her she, that's not the case she did not know any one of these actually what it turned out a data realizes that the the ghetto from where these three men belonged in that ghetto people believe that you know our sons are innocent this girl she knew this other boy from another locality so she went to meet him it's her fault um she should you know they had an affair so she got it uh, the bad side of it but it, it is those little mythologies that people often create you know to try mm-hmm. to protect their own but and times of india reported that version and that's not true the 12 year old girl does not know that 24 year old man who raped her so i don't know how they get to get the basic facts or get the you know smallest nuggets of information wrong on such a disastrous scale because if this matter goes to say you know like it went to the national human rights commission which issued a notice to the DC, the dcp of haryana and they obviously said they rely on media reports and they stated certain facts and they obviously their information was also based on these ht and tri reports and it was wrong they said the girl was raped over two days that wasn't the case also so it's just baffling how you can't and when i met the woman the grandmother of the kid she's an orphan she said no one came to meet me so obviously all this information was uh, derived without meeting the guardian of the victim mm-hmm. so that it turned out to be a media critique piece but um, just misreporting so the going back to my previous question using this case as an example if you did not have access to medical records right while i understand the need to trust the survivor and the complainant which is this little girl in this case then how do you go out and say that she was raped only by trusting her testimony i don't get the question i mean if you have to report what happened right mm. like you said the medical records aren't out but if let's say a media organization reports that she was raped without medical records mm. would that be classified as activism rather than journalism no i mean if the girl states that she has been raped then you simply you know write that she claims she has been raped you need you needn't pass any judgment on the fact of whether she was raped or not you don't need to establish it you know prematurely but you should state her version of things mm-hmm. so that's the simple idea there's no activism there as such no i say activism because to my understanding gorf please vein apshita please vein to my understanding as journalists there's need for corroboration right so, uh, similarly for nrc let's say someone says that they are citizens but they don't have documents to prove but we go out and say as journalists that 
let's say X and X is a citizen, but we haven't seen the records, but we are saying they are citizens. So isn't that non-journalistic because we aren't able to corroborate the testimony of what this person is saying? Okay, I mean, it's not the perfect analogy. I mean, one is a bureaucracy, another is personal experience. But for example, if just if I had just had to go beyond the girl's testimony, I mm-hmm. mean, I met her grandmother. Uh, there are things I didn't put in my copy because they were rather gruesome. But she did tell me the kind of things her granddaughter was going through, which very evidently pointed to the fact that she was violated. I mean, th- that, is, that is another thing that a journalist can do. I didn't state this in the copy because, first of all, I didn't go, I didn't actually doubt her fact that she, her testimony was by any means wrong. But yeah, the little nuggets of information of how the girl has been, what are the symptoms, you know, post the incident, they, you can match those up. But of course, if you have to purely rely on documents, then, then you should absolutely wait until the medical records come in. Ipshita, do you want so to So I think it's a key to attribute mm-hmm. um, and to report as transparently as possible. You know, from what I've discovered in my sort of reporting from Kashmir and Northeast is there are always versions. So, you know, so we can't be godlike in like declaring, you know, this is the truth of the matter. We need to, I think, say, you know, report what the family said. Uh, also try and go to the police and ask them what they think. And then put out both both versions. And then it is for the reader to decide. Okay. Moving on. Gaurav, what did you think was overreported? What was underreported over the last week? Or what caught your eye? Well, uh, so the Bombay High Court case that we just spoke about, the mm-hmm. Alibag one, was my second favorite court case this week. Uh, the <laughs> first one was a severely underreported case in the Delhi High Court where uh, this NGO from Bangalore called the Great Legalization Movement and uh, they seek to regularize the use of cannabis recreationally and medically in India. So TGLM, the Great Legalization Movement, had petitioned the Bombay High Court back in 2014 as well. But because of a lot of pushback from parents and from organizations, they just they withdrew their petition. But they're back this time parents. in the Delhi High Court. Huh. And uh, they talk about how hemp should be used across industries, you know, to save on like, so as to not use plastic or to, or to not cut trees. And it specifically pointed out towards the NDPS Act, which is the Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances Act, which is a law from 1857, uh, which basically clubs category A, B and C drugs in the same category. So the petition points out to ambiguity like, you know, holy pe tum bhang pite ho, to at that time everyone just turns a blind eye. When it comes to Ayurveda, you know, using it in Ayurveda, then also you will turn a blind eye. But if there's a recreational use of it, then you'll come down with a fine that is equivalent to doing a line of cocaine, you know, which is completely unparalleled. In fact, in the US as well, the drugs are classified in A, B, C, depending like methanol come in C. Cannabis will come in like A, which means that it's not really addictive, but it's still like a psychotropic drug. So this was my favorite case that went down and only Bar and Bench seemed to report it and then Vice went off yeah. on the Bar and Bench report and obviously spoke a little about it. In fact, uh, the, the stringent, the clubbing of, you know, very dangerous uh, drugs with... Uh, substances like cannabis Mm -hmm. came about in the 80s when the Reagan administration pressured Rajiv Gandhi to make an amendment in the NDPS Act. And I think that was because they wanted to uh, legalize alcohol at that time and they wanted to trump alcohol sales. I think it was during the prohibition if I'm not wrong. It was during the whole war on drugs hysteria that was going on in North America. That's when they they tried to obviously put put that in place in India also and it was out of pressure that we did it. But culturally speaking, the disdain towards cannabis only comes from Victorian and going back some Brahmanical orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. In this land, there is no such thing as Shiva ka Prasad, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, I don't Bambu know. If so, you could. actually shouldn't ban it then? Hmm? You actually shouldn't ban it then since it is... No, God's you should regulate it. That's that's the whole point that the petition is making that you should cut out on the black market cartel, which is dealers, and you should tax the product like how Colorado has done. They made like a billion Which is what I'm prop. saying. It should be regulated and shouldn't have to operate in the black market because it is Shivaka Prashad. And given how India has been functioning hmm. based on these sentiments... I think you have a free hand. Why don't you go file a petition? I'll just follow the case for now. Parents would uh, scold us now. That's the only problem. <laughs> As if you listen to your parents, both of you. But you know, in Colorado, the newspapers have a green editor just to uh, carry pieces and perspectives and opinions on um, legalization. But we will be covering this case now from here on. Mm. Hmm. With activist zeal. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, I wanted to speak about how 
the amendments to the Right to Information Act has been superly underreported. I thought, given that how important RTI is as a tool for public to access information that the government may or may not want to reveal, I thought these amendments, which sort of attack the structure which would take away the independence of the RTI, it was really underreported. Just to give just to explain what the RTI is and what are the changes that are being proposed, here's a brief explainer. So under the RTI Act 2005, public authorities are supposed to make disclosures on various aspects. This includes uh, organization, functions, structures, powers, and also financial information, which if we look at the bullet project in uh, Ahmedabad, government just doesn't want to make. So this was an important tool to hold, sort of bring accountability to opaque processes. But the changes that are being proposed would sort of systemically uh, do away with the structure that we have. So we have a currently we have a three tier structure, you have uh, public authorities appointing public information officers, if you're not satisfied, or you're not happy with the order or the information they are providing, then you can appeal the order to appellate authorities. And if you're not happy with that, then you can again, there's a second appeal, you can appeal again, and they have to respond within 30 days. So now the changes that are being proposed are as follows. Last week on July 19, the government introduced a bill titled the Right to Information Amendment Bill 2019. This proposed law will make changes to the salaries and tenures of the appointed information commissioners. The tenure right now is fixed at five years, and the salary is equivalent to the chief election commissioner and the election commissioners respectively. But if this law gets gets passed, the decision to as to what the salary would be and what the tenure would be, would be decided by the central government. I mean, again, you're giving back the power to the central government rather than decentralizing power. So information officers that could have gone after the government saying like, you need to provide information to this person, they might not be able to do it because now the salary and tenure is the government's decision. So I thought this was super important. And given that a lot of media organizations themselves rely on information from these public authorities, we are these officers this should have caught the media eye and the media should have as I put it earlier should have taken the activist role and should have reported on it but and given that about 80 did you know about 80 RTI activists have been killed in the past year in the past couple of years 80 80 this was this data I picked up from Aruna Roy's article in the Hindu 8-0 I was actually really shocked that's insane. That is. And I was just surprised how people have not reported on this. And the government can just go ahead and pass it. And you would have little or no access to information that is currently being put in the public domain. Is there anything anyone wants to add to this? One point particularly is that so right now it got passed in the Lok Sabha, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of uproar from the opposition and there was a lot of pushback as well. What I wanted to ask generally is that since there's already so much of a pushback in the Lok Sabha, you know, where the current government is in a majority. In the Rajya Sabha, that's not really the case. So for this bill to get passed in the Rajya Sabha is going to be a completely different ballgame depending on uh, how well the opposition play this out, you know. And in my personal opinion, I think it's a it's a move to like clamp down on what, what the government wants you to know and what they particularly do not want you to know. So it's a very dangerous precedent to try and amend the RTI Act in itself, especially with these suggestions. But, you know, I feel like there, you know, the media at least should, I mean, I would like to be able to read uh, an article that, that joined the dots because, you know, the government has argued that this makes the RTI, this, this stream, streamlines the RTI Act, makes it more uh, efficient, better delivery, blah, blah. but, you know, how exactly these kind of bureaucratic changes to salaries, you know, and the tenures of, of the RTI um, officers actually translates into curbing the scope of the law and curbing people's uh, right to know. You know, we I think we um, we need more clarification on that. Just to address that bit about what the amendment bill says is why the government is putting this forward is that the functions being carried out by the election commission of India and the central and state information commissioner commissions are totally different. That is their reason for asking to regulate the tenures and salaries. I mean, I don't understand this. So you're right. I mean, a piece explaining how this ends up curbing the rights of people would be very important. It shouldn't be seen in isolation either. I mean, if you look at what they did at the finance ministry, the quarantine to restrict the access of journalists, and the excuse they gave was 
that it was meant to you know uh, make hassle free movement easier and the whole thing about taking away advertisements from these couple of newspapers known to be critical of the government it's a trend of taking uh, making sure that the civil society and the press um you know that erecting walls that doesn't let them go through and see what the state is up to okay that's a wrap for today but before we go would you uh, would everyone like to share their recommendations uh, ayush so large scale massacre in sonbhadra district which is in the up bihar border 400 kilometers away from lucknow about 10 people from the gond community were shot down over a land dispute yes and there was think dispute was a misnomer isn't there it? was a there was a piece of land that you know the farmers used to work on and uh, they used to pay a rent to a trust for working on that piece of land and it turns out the two of the trustees sold that land to this one individual mm-hmm. and the farmer said okay you sell it to him so we pay rent to him and we'll work on the land but the guy was like no i want all of this complete possession and uh, when they these people the people of the gond community who are dalits you know they went to negotiate with the pradhan who had bought the land they are gujjar but they are backward dominant community over there negotiations followed and soon it turned into pretty heated and the pradhan and his men shot dead 10 people of the gond community on the spot uh, i didn't see really rigorous coverage of this besides the indian express which did a very good job of covering it so that's my recommendation they have done a series of uh, you know investigative reports on this so people should read that to tell you the truth i didn't come to know about or read about this on the day i read about this when priyanka gandhi vadra went there and there was this twitter mm-hmm. drama about priyanka and sonbhadra and that is when i read about this which made me think how underreported how serious first how serious this issue is there are 10 people being shot dead i mean what really yeah. and the media i just was amazed that there was so there was i was looking for ground reports to understand what really happened and like ipshita said that quote unquote it was a land dispute and i was trying to understand what really happened what is this land dispute and i found very little ground reports sorry am i got an not just land dispute the initial report said um there was a gunfight i mean there was no fight here there were from what from what later reports suggest men in a tractor came and just opened fire on people killing th- uh, killing 10 people you know it's completely one sided there was there was a drain nearby at the site of this massacre where people went and hid you know they went inside crept inside it's like if you've seen um, inglorious bastards the opening scene and they actually took people out of the drain and then shot them wow, so this it expresses coverage very extensively but um, i was saying it was they did cover it a day before priyanka gandhi wadra went there but i think i think the nearest police station to where this ha- the thing has happened is 25 kilometers away so the, even the police had to take a couple of hours by the time they reached there so no wonder it it reached delhi so late of course but even then i mean there's no excuse for misreporting yeah, yeah, what definitely is not. even for ground reporting i mean you have to report this is very serious so two important uh, updates in the sonbhadra case one is that uh, you know we didn't discuss about how the people you know the the 10 people who were killed the villagers wanted them to be buried at the site of the dispute itself and there was a huge un cry about this but the administration won and they convinced the people that you know you have to do you have to bury them wherever you bury them usually not at the site of the dispute the second thing is that a committee headed by the additional chief secretary of revenue has been appointed to look into the claims of this land that has been bought from that bihar ips officer if i'm not wrong so they the the committee will have to submit a report within 10 days which will shed further light on the issue gora what would you like to recommend um it's this book called the new new journalism by robert s boynton uh, okay. it's a 2005 book and it creates a parallel to tom wolf's idea of new journalism where you know he talks about how they were the new generation of writers and the new new journalism uh, talks about the best non fiction writers in america most of them from the new yorker who uh, basically undertake projects for about 6 8 months so there's one of the guys in the book who became a hobo traveling traveling the subways for about 6 months and then wrote like a 18000 word piece on it and the new new journalism talks about just getting each and every bit of information and putting it on paper that's gonzo right but is the new form of gonzo journalism oh. gonzo i think mm. is uh, hunter s thompson's yeah, yeah brand why okay. are you making faces at 18000 words ipshita what would you like to recommend um i would like to recommend i think conversations with friends which is a book by sally rooney which i just read what is the book about it's it's, it's by this irish author and uh, it's about kind of broadly speaking i suppose relationships you know friendships um romantic sexual relationships 
but it's it's really witty it's really smart about makes very smart observations about how these things work in you know in modern life and um it and the prose is just beautiful it goes down like water you can read it in a day or two okay uh i want to recommend three things one is the Ugh, three things ha 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 one is the piece i was referring to the tremor of unwelcome amendments to the rti act written it's an op-ed written by aruna roy and nikhilde in the hindu then there's an rti explainer uh, published by prs please do check that out and the third piece is an op-ed by gautam bhatia again in the hindu it's titled inhumane and utterly undemocratic this is about why the nrc process is uh, so contentious and why the supreme court sort of uh, the supreme court's decision becomes flawed in sort of uh, allowing the foreigner uh, foreigners tribunals decision to sort of go on and become what the decision becomes making people illegal immigrants and taking away their citizenship please do check that out do check out newslaundry.com for amazing work and listeners if you're listening to this podcast on stitcher itunes or now even on spotify don't forget to log on to our website www.newslaundry.com to check out the other cool stuff that we do so that's a wrap for the episode thank you everyone who listens to us please write to us with your feedback with comments with things you'd like to listen if you'd like to participate in the podcast to talk about media's reportage please write to parikshit at parikshit@newslaundry.com if you want to send us criticism comments please you can leave it on uh, gorov and ayush's timeline you can send dms to us on instagram and remember to pay to keep news free independent and azad because unless you do that we won't be able to put out podcasts like these we won't be able to put out podcasts like the hafta or reports that we do you can tweet about this podcast to let people know if you like us if you don't like us if you'd like to recommend our work with hashtag reporters without orders also dear listeners uh, don't forget to head to www.themediarumble.com and buy your tickets for the media rumble which will be taking place at the india habitat center in new delhi on august 2nd and 3rd there's Ayush, a did you buy your tickets Uh, I don't have to buy tickets actually. <laughs> That is right for subscribers it would be free. Uh, yeah, I'm a subscriber I forgot. <laughs> you totally are. I also happen to work here by the way. <laughs> But dear listeners, it's a forum where you would get to hear a lot of amazing speakers and you would be able to listen to ideas and how whether news is working and how we can make news work if it is not. So do check out the Media Rumble. You can also check out NL Sena. Uh, we have a new project up. It's about who owns your media. News Laundry had done this project earlier in 2014 and we need your support to execute this project once again. I hope you check out NL Sena and the Media Rumble and subscribe to News Laundry. Happy subscribing. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.